This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me. Help. Help. Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here on the uh, Ward Scott Files today, and I'm just checking my computers, making sure I've got them all working properly. Uh, you never know. I've got so many things uh, spinning this plates, as they call them, spinning here. And um, we are uh, in the manly Warthog Man Cave inside the Melbourne Law Studio, who has a full legal service with only official law firm partner, the Florida Gators. And uh, we are, of course, um, let me just adjust this computer here. We are in uh, protected by CPS, S.NET, Crime Prevention, uh, 24 7 365. So there you have it. There you have it. And uh, uh, we will um, bring a show today to you that, uh, thanks for all the sponsors, by the way. And I'm going to bring a show today to try to use my students, you all, as my audience to see if I can figure out what is going on in the political battle that's coming up here soon. Uh, we know we're going to have. Um, this midterm election is going to have all sorts of uh, importance. As I'm looking at my computer, I'm even getting stuff from Herschel Walker here as if, uh, you know, I can vote in Georgia. But anyway, uh, that's how competitive it is, as you know. And uh, it's kind of interesting, all these last minute uh, kind of real pushes to to uh, get the most vote and the most money and all that. But that's the way the system works. I've got to tell you that um, I want to start off with a local. And so, so local is still kind of disappointing in that the headline grabber, and it seems to be this um, disgruntlement, this disapproval of the selection by um, the powers that be for the next University of Florida president. And the odd thing about this, you know, you, you know, I'm sure you've heard the line, the lady doth protest too much, which is one of the famous um, Shakespearean um, comments made in all the great work he's created. And what he's pointing out to is the more you protest, the more you reveal that you are really guilty. And this is a line applies to the UF Faculty Senate. The U.F. Faculty Senate is protesting the politicalization of the presidential pick to the University of Florida. Well, guess what? In protesting, they reveal themselves, do they not, to be ed up, as we say, with politicalization. And what they're really saying, and you would think they would be smart enough to see this, is, um, hey, by protesting so vociferously, this pick to be the president on the basis of the fact that he is, quote unquote, a Republican. 
then have we not revealed ourselves to be exactly the objective correlative of this? We are the radical Democrat. Well, I suppose you could excuse that if it were not for the fact that it takes place in an institution of higher learning. And in an institution of higher learning, one is supposed to have insulation from censorship unless, of course, as is the case with these faculty uh, Senate people, they become the censors, which they've become. Because they have become such vehement public censors of anything which doesn't agree with them, they have, of course, caused people who want open speech to push back. And, you know, for every action is an equally reaction, rea- uh, reaction. So to the degree to which they are locked down and in transit, then, of course, there needs to be an equal reply to break their fortification. Now, this is not new to the political field right now, I would argue. In fact, this kind of is characteristic of what we have going on in, a, in this political scene coming up, as best I can tell from all the people I've interviewed and all the people of that uh, we have uh, 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 had on the, on the show and all the various ways in which we've come at it, why it's, uh, it is what it is. It is a divided country politicized by primarily the behavior of the left. So um, we, we uh, have to take a look at this, and I'm going to try to figure out what in the world is causing it, um, why it's happening this way, and um, um, what I'm still fiddling here with, the, with my machine, I'm, I apologize, um, and, and why we can't have a... Uh, I'm still fiddling here with the... And I got it had sound on it too. Okay, good morning. I see y'all, Larry and all of you. Um, and Ken Hillier says he'll cast my vote in Georgia. Well, Ken, I keep getting all this stuff from uh, from Herschel Walker, so maybe he should. Although maybe I can't vote. I'm not. You know, let's get out. Get into that. Somebody will listen to the show. I think we're really talking about doing it. But anyway, this um, polarization is the kind of the subject for today. Because there have been predictions of that there's a Republican tide coming. And, you know, I'm wary of that sort of thing, given the shenanigans that have been going on in these elections and uh, possibility of election beep and all that business. So I want to start out really trying to set the climate. I am saying disappointed in the way the University of Florida faculty and by the way, um, um, the union doesn't work, talk for the faculty over there. Um, the unions, very few people belong to the union, comparatively speaking, to the numbers of faculty on the campus. So the faculty senate has defined itself as polarized. That's where I'm starting. Now, this cultural context in which we are now examining the races is what I'm kind of interested in helping with today. We've got, by the latest polling, a slam dunk, one would think, by DeSantis on Christ. Uh, people see through Christ. He really doesn't stand for anything. 
He's a professional career politician, uh, never in Congress much, uh, been the governor. Uh, he's just an, uh, you know, nobody remembers much about the guy. And yet they drag him out. The cupboard is pretty bare in the state for Democrat candidates. When you have Nikki Fried Fried Frazzle as one of your leading contenders in the Democrat Party, you're pretty hard up. So right now it appears as if uh, we have got this situation reversed, so to speak, everywhere, but of course, Alachua County. We'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, Jason Riley, I want to speak with his uh, thoughts in mind here for a second. Uh, for the first time, he says, and he's, of course, a black writer, man, human being with a great brain, writes for the Wall Street Journal. He feel, he says that we're the, the Republican Party is feeling the most historically diverse slate of candidates is ever presented. Now, when I get over talking about single member districts in a moment, we're going to talk about that. The influence or lack thereof of the black so-called black vote. Jason Riley says that according to uh, committee tabulations uh, who study these parties, 28 of the Republican parties uh, 435 House candidates on the ballot next month are black and 33 are Hispanic. Now, 33 and 28, uh, what is that, 61? Um, so that's a pretty good number of Hispanic and black candidates in what the Democrats are trying to create the image of being all white supremacists. That's not floating when you look at the actual data. Uh, there's a John James of Michigan and a Wesley Hunt of Texas. They're both black. They're both West Point graduates and they're both favored to win. And Jason Riley drills down a little more deeply on this and says that meanwhile, the Democrats are talking nonstop about an electoral system that suppresses the vote and disenfranchises minorities. And yet, when you take 61 Hispanic and Black candidates in the Republican Party, that contradicts, does it not, the storyline the Democrats are putting out. Now, that doesn't mean that people won't believe the storyline, because one of the purposes of this show is to try to find the actual data and present it to you and let you just oppose it to the storyline that you're getting from the media. Because as we've said repeatedly, if you're getting information from the media, you're not getting the truth. And we easily can demonstrate that. So in 2008 and 2012, Riley writes, the black turnout rate exceeded the white rate, which of course contradicts what you would have, uh, the Democrat Party would have you believe. In 2018, Riley writes, the Black, Hispanic, and Asian turnout was the highest on record for midterm elections. Now, this midterm election promises to top that one. So the reality is uh, you have to take, as we, we always say with a grain of salt, the Democrats' propaganda that political opponents to the Democrats are racist. 
which is the popular line, especially here locally with the so-called black leaders that this community stuck with. They constantly play the race car, but the national numbers don't support that. And there's all sorts of curiosity about how many blacks here locally will vote for single member districts. So what we're setting here for you is the climate, if you will, in which all these discussions are taking place that people are going to act upon no later than November 8th. Now, when I say November, no later than November 8th, one of the troubling things about early voting is there are people who have already voted. I talked to a friend of mine who voted yesterday and, and said at the poll, it was up on 50, the, the, the precinct up on 53rd, uh, was all kinds of Democrat signs out there, very few Republican. And he went in, voted Republican. But he's voting. So if something were to change in the next, this is the problem with early voting. So if something were to change, be an early Republican voter or early Democrat voter, uh, that vote would have already been cast if something were to change between now and November 8th. So uh, the, 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 uh, even uh, poverty and unemployment, Jason Riley says, for blacks and Hispanics, were the lowest on record during the Trump administration. Were the lowest on, listen, why do you think that's not brought up? Why do you think abortion is brought up? Abortion is way down the list of things significant to the well-being, particularly of the middle class in this country. It has nothing to do with it. It's the price of gas. It's the price of eggs. It's... Those are the things that are squeezing people. So much so that I know people who have been losing employees because they can't afford to pay what the employees say they need and increase an hourly wage in order to pay for the gas and food they need to get to the job. But the employer doesn't have the profit margin to raise the wages. So something's got to give pretty soon, right? So the black wages and quality of life are not nearly as good under the current administration. But do you hear about that? No, you don't hear about that. Um, it's, it's not there. So one reason Jason Riley, who is black, says that millions of black Americans have such poor and unresponsive political representation is that they've been taken uh, for, for, for granted by the Democrat Party and they themselves, the blacks, have failed to utilize the two-party system and pit each other, each party against the other one to provide the best deal for the black. They don't do that. I contend it's because the blacks here locally still have the same old tired leadership that they've had for decades. Uh, the Ronnie Longs, the Evelyn Fox, oh, I know all these people. And they're the same tired, hackneyed arguments that have always been here. And I'll tell you something else that uh, Jason Riley brings up. There are many independent thinking black people 
in East Gainesville who are, I know them, they're friends of mine, but why don't you hear from them? Because peer pressure from these leaders keeps them from coming out, so to speak. It's the same thing that happens with the woke behavior all across the board. If you're a business and you support a conservative cause, then the woke will come and pick at your business. It's not about a fair representation or competition between the parties, which would provide the best results for people affected by party behavior. Would it not? So that the blacks, Jason Riley says, are taken advantage of by the Democrats and continue to allow themselves to be taken advantage of by the Democrats and to be taken for granted by the Democrats. Perhaps, though, in the national trend, you see a reversal. You see a tide reversing. Now, we've got the phone lines open today if you want to kind of chime in anytime on this conversation. And uh, we, uh, we, we, we apologized to the caller the other day. Who I don't see the number up here just yet, but uh, we apologized to the caller the other day who was on hold for about 10 minutes and they get through. We're not going to let that happen today. So if you call in, we will hopefully get right to you. Um, this is your show today. This is your commentary. Uh, hey, Ryan Cox is watching from Mississippi. Great to hear from you. Um, the, the story here is best told, by the way, by a black writer, Jason Riley, who, thank goodness we've got the quality of writing and the fearless subject matter that he will address. Um, so there's little evidence, he concludes, that the monolithic group ideology, that's what he calls it, that's his phrase, which is an excellent phrase, the monolithic group ideology of the Democrats facilitates any upward mobility uh, but for the blacks. Now, I don't know what it's going to take. I think I know. A change in leadership. We've been looking for a long time in this community. I'm just talking about this community now. For young blacks to step up who are independent thinkers, who are politically savvy, who can actually articulate and advocate for issues that not only cross party lines, but across race lines, uh, ideological lines. Uh, and, and, and we've got maybe the same need on the Republican side. And it's always a challenge to get young leaders because there's a certain maturity it takes aging, really, to put things in perspective and prioritize. And that's one of the things that troubles me so much about the Democrat Party, how immature it is and how uh, it wants to exploit the, 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 the emotional side of human beings. And they don't have an argument for the economy, so they distract with a bogus argument for abortion. Abortion was never outlawed. It was just put back to the states. So, you know, that's the story. But that's not the story you get from the public media. So Riley concludes that the black voters deserve more options and that these black Republicans, thank goodness, who are on the ballot are beginning to indicate that they understand that too. 
and that they will be uh, 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 representative of the greater good for people, not just people who are subjected to the herd mentality. Now, you would think that the, re- the reason I express that conversation with you is you would think the University of Florida Faculty Senate would understand that and be mature itself. But I haven't seen anything about it, uh, and I know it pretty well, having interacted with it once upon a time as the Senate president of Santa Fe. Um, I haven't seen any maturity on their part and a willingness to accept some responsibility on their part for politicizing the university. The politicization of the university is revealed in their objection to the presidential pick. So uh, keep that in mind. And uh, the president will be there, as I say, to advocate for money to pay those faculty. That's really the bottom line. He's got to advocate for the university in a state that has much stronger political representation in the southern part of the state than it does here in the central part of the state. The representation in, in, uh, in Tallahassee uh, from the south and those universities there in terms of getting money and attention is much greater than it is here. So we've got to redefine the importance of the University of Florida. And that's what this is all about with flagship university and uh, we compete with Harvard and all that. It's an attempt to distinguish itself above the fray of the other universities and make it themselves out to be a better place to get a better education when the truth of the matter is that's not fundamentally so. You get the kind of education that you want to get. I mind you of the story when Don Pierce and Malcolm Briley, I brought them to the Santa Fe College Library to speak to them. Both of them were convicts, had been criminals, had been locked up. Don Pierce wrote Cool Hand Luke, did the time, wrote the book, wrote the screenplay, acted in the movie, nominated for the Academy Award, did not have a high school education. Malcolm Bradley wrote a fan, really was a better writer, wrote On the Yard, False Starts, uh, wrote for Sports Illustrated, did 17 years in San Quentin. Uh, was an adopted kid and then was rejected by the adopted home, ended up being a ward of the state in California. Just that's the way his life went. But he and uh, Don Pierce spoke to a whole library full of students. And at the end, as I think I've told you the story, uh, several, about a dozen of so of the students came up around the desk to talk to them. And one of the students said, where did you guys get your education? And Malcolm Bradley says they had a library in San Quentin. So that's really all we're talking about. That's really all we're talking about. All this high kaflutin. Now, there's some things you need assistance with. You need laboratories, as we, as we say, laboratories. You need um, that sort of money to, to, to do that. But in terms of undergraduate education, in terms of getting your bachelor's, in terms of uh, becoming someone who is capable of, of taking your degree and building upon it, it doesn't take 
uh, all of that type of funding. Uh, when you get into research and graduate, yes, it does help to have the funding. But basically, it just takes motivation on your part to want to know. And that's what Malcolm Rayleigh and Don Pierce were saying. Hey, we wanted to know. We wanted to learn how to use the language. We wanted to learn what a sentence was, where it started and stopped, and how many different varieties there were to it, and how we could write them so that they were absolutely memorable and do what Eric Hoffer. Eric Hoffer had no high school education. He was a longshoreman, and he wrote the great social work, The True Believer. And in inter when he was interviewed, they asked him what he liked about writing, and he said he liked to write sentences that were like fish hooks that stuck in you when you read them. And that is a very, very high uh, degree of, of, uh, of standard, that you want to write a sentence. It's not just a sentence. You know, the only place I've ever seen this in picture frames, sentences in picture frames, not photographs, but sentences, is in the complete anchor in Bimini, which is a bar that Hemingway hung out in and Rhode Island's in the stream and all that business, which also became a, a song, I think, uh, Kenny Rogers, if I remember right. Um, and, and we're talking about the Gulf Stream. But if you, when I was there, if you went into the complete anchor, you found people staring at framed images on the wall. And you thought, well, maybe they're looking at pictures of a fish or they're looking at, you know, something from the sea. No, when you went and looked, they were looking at a Hemingway sentence about a fish. And they, I, that's the only place I've ever seen people stand and study or stare or fixate, however you want to say it, on a sentence in a picture frame. Just a sentence. And there's one sentence I remember in the frame that is uh, probably from Old Man in the Sea. I'm, I'm, I'm talking from recollection about a, about a sailfish breaking the, breaking the surface of the water. And the sentence imitates precisely that motion in its rhythm, in its choice of language. And people stand there and stare at it. And in their mind, they create the image based upon the words. Uh, that is really what it's all about, particularly in undergraduate education. And also, it is about learning to use those sentences to develop your critical thinking skills. Other than that, we don't need all this ideology. We don't need all this. I would even go so far as to say criminology. It's a crime against open and free discussion to have mature faculty members like those in the faculty senate laying down this one-sided argument about politics in the university. So I, it, it's, just, it's just something that uh, you need to be aware of, and I thought I'd talk about it a little bit with you. In a single memory. Yeah. Okay, we got Plantation Mike on the uh, Mark on the line. What's going on, Mark? Sun's out. Hello, Mark. Okay, Ward, you got me now? Got you, sir. Okay, uh, I want to talk a little bit about early voting. It's been going on up here in Virginia for almost two weeks now, 
And uh, I really can't see it. There's only 10,000 registered voters in my county. And it's probably as big as Alachua County. Of course, there's only about 16,000-something residents in the county and about 1,600 total students in school in the county. So we don't have too much to deal with up here. But people like John James, uh, he's there's just tons and tons of military veterans running out there. Ryan Zinke's got a, a seal pack out. He's helping five guys in. And uh, like I said, I send money all over this country trying to put in some conservatives in different states there when they're challenging the uh, incumbent Democrats. So hopefully uh, it'll win out in the short term and, and look out for redistricting because I've been redistricted out of my congressional district and out of my state senator's district. Now, I've got a letter from my state senator and uh, my congressman, and when they redistrict up here, they just uh, put me right over in a Democrat district because I don't think there's any way we're ever going to get a Republican in there, even though I've contributed to him and uh, helped his campaigns and put out yard signs and everything else for him. But we'll just see what happens, and uh, you guys... Mark, Mark, the warmth while you can. Mark, Mark, before you go, let them know where you are. A lot of people don't know where you're living. I'm, uh, I live right above the North Carolina border in Virginia. Uh, if you come uh, due west of Virginia Beach, uh, follow US 58 out 130 miles. I'm over here 100 miles south of Richmond and 100 miles north of Raleigh, and I'm 12 miles from the North Carolina border. So. <laughs> I'm I'm stuck in the middle out here. <laughs> well, you're very well informed in terms of being stuck. You're not stuck in terms of being well informed. Thank you, Mark. Mark's a great supporter of the show. We go way back, even to my radio days, and he would come back when we would uh, come by when we would broadcast remote from a remote location. So um, we we uh, he's very very active and very supportive and and gives money and uh, you know. Talk, uh, talks the walk and walks the talk that whole bit. So proud to have him as a fan here of the Ward Scott Files because he's a very sophisticated student of um, of a lot of different things about our culture. Well, we've got to, if you want to call in, we're going to take a break right now at the bottom of the hour. We have the call in number up. It's 352-707-9101. When you call in, tell a production what your name is and then they'll let me know who's on the line. We'll have a chat. So uh, it's uh, it's all about the um, election sort of t- today and um, the culture that the election is taking place in. And uh, if you have some insight or special uh, understanding of it, well, certainly you're invited to share it with us. We'll be right back on the Ward Scott Files. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott. 
And I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, R&R Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pat him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. Welcome back to Ward Scott Files. We're going to bring you a little bit of the weather here. Thanks to Lewis Oil. Great sponsor here for us. Been in the um, business for a long, long time here in our community and uh, excellent supporter of the show. It's kind of gloomy out there today uh, when I peeked out before we went into the studio here in the uh, Piney Woods of North Central Florida in the Warthog Command Center. And uh, it perhaps is going to rain, maybe misty, a little dark. Uh, nevertheless, it's possible. There's been no precipitation uh, according to uh, AccuTra- uh, weather. The last 60 minutes, about 68 degrees. Uh, it's been 64, as low as 64, and it may go up to about 81 today. It is um, maybe going to be uh, clearing out of here soon and be a nice day tomorrow. There's no real heavy projections of rain uh, for the uh, big outdoor cocktail party there in Jacksonville. Uh, so the temperature is about 68 degrees here outside where we are. Very low wind, and everything is uh, typically our kind of mild life here in the in the fall months of uh, of North Central Florida. Uh, we're still dealing, of course, with the aftermath of in victims, and we ran a story yesterday on that about how many people drowned and uh, what uh, is the whole big consequence of that. Uh, there's there's a lot of things that are, I talked to some of the insurance people yesterday. Uh, you know, insurance issues are really tenuous here in the state of Florida. We don't need this type of thing to come along, but here we are. That's what it is. And that's going to be an issue for the legislature to try to come back and revisit again. So uh, the uh, 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 weather is going to influence the economy in that respect. And that if you uh, have uh, a need for insurance, of course, to cover your 
residents that's going to be either more expensive or more difficult to get or all of the above. So we'll see how that turns out. Hopefully we can get some sort of legislative resolution or relief from that here in our area of, of, of the country. 352-707-9101. If you want to give a chat with us about what you see is our political climate right now. Curiously, I've been watching the New York Times, which is a, a liberal paper. I know because I've been interviewed by them and uh, that article they wrote about, uh, which had me in it, I couldn't really recognize it from based on what I had said to them and based upon what they presented and how they presented it. They're always looking for, for whatever reasons, maybe it's because it has the word New York, um, just to have a leftist point of view. So nevertheless, it's coming around where it's kind of having to accept a little more reality, at least as some of us see it. And here are some of the things that Ross Dothart has written about in the New York Times that caught my attention. He uh, is concerned about the fact that since the leak on the Dobbs decision, now let's go back and talk about that, lest we forget it. That leak that came out of that Supreme Court about what was going to happen with abortion is criminal, treasonable in many people's books. One of the highest breaches of trust you can ever have. So don't forget that the politicalization of the Supreme Court, don't forget to add that to your list of frustrations from, on, from by people who have lost confidence in the government. Now, if you're one of the ones who was irrationally pro-abortion, and by that I mean you couldn't understand why it didn't belong in the Constitution, why do uh, you have right now, according to Dothart, you have the law on your side. He says that since that decision was leaked in May, the conservative organization Catholic Vote has had 75 attacks on pro-life organizations around the country. Vandalism, arson, graffiti, firebombings, largely as the responsibility of a group called Jane's Revenge, who publicly taken responsibility for it. Um, they are probably pro-choice terrorists, but they're not called that. And they're not prosecuted or pursued as that. The FBI supposedly is investigating, and this is all according to Dolphart, supposedly investigating, but it's not made any arrests. So there's a slow-seeming federal response to this wave of violence, and there's a slow-seeming commensurate vigor, which the government has been using to pursue uh, the pro-abortion, but has been using vigorously to pursue the anti-abortion. So there's a double standard. We've been talking about this double standard. And that seems fair to the Democrats and patently unfair to the Republicans if you associate abortion, pro-abortion with the Democrats and pro-life with the Republicans, which is generally the associations. So the Washington Examiner has even said uh, that the Biden Justice Department goes fishing with this issue and arrests 
uh, pro-life activists and charges them, while pro-choice arsonists are just a lower priority. Double standard. And this is an article that appears of all places in the New York Times. So what's going on is the law protects the in-groups, but chases the out-groups, the groups that are out of favor or who don't subscribe to the community standard, which is what YouTube calls it, or the proper narrative, which Obama calls it. Therefore, the institutions are not trusted. The Supreme Court's not trusted because of the leak. The FBI's not trusted because of the unfair uh, prosecution or arrest. And the summation by voters, and we'll see the extent to which that is going to influence the midterms, is that the rules of the game have been applied unequally. They're limiting principles like free speech and religious liberty and freedom of association, but they are uh, letting fly without any kind of punitive uh, uh, control of people who parade violently and picket violently. And yeah, my golly, I mean, look at what we just started off the show with, with the universities. The universities are complicit in it. Um, in California right now, there's lining up to be, at least the press is lining it up this way. The battle between Newsom and DeSantis for president in 2024, and the press is beginning to study this. And once again, this is kind of an interesting, I won't call it totally objective by the New York Times, but a little more candid than I thought it would be. Um, the New York Times points out that the California Democrats have their own attack on the First Amendment. Meanwhile, they criticize DeSantis for attacking the First Amendment. But the California Democrats attacks, according to the New York Times, match DeSantis or surpassing in intensity and scale. For example, the diversity, equity, inclusion, loyalty oath is applied across the board to job seekers and any academic job seeker in California's public university. Now, in all of the newspaper reporting I've seen about the faculty senate here, Florida, protesting uh, the presidential nominee to run the university, has any of the writers of Gainesville Sunset bothered to say are new academic people or even the ones in the Senate required to take a diversity, equity, and inclusion oath in order to teach. We know that they go through indoctrination. We have that on Ward's Hot Bulletin Board. We know it in the theater of arts. It's all over the place. I've got the documents. And I'm told by their faculty who are conservatives, it's all over the university. Well, this is something that uh, is heavy handed in California. And that DeSantis doesn't want to allow here. But when DeSantis comes in, why, oh my golly, he's interfering politically with the university. 
But when Newsom comes in, oh my golly, he's supporting the university. Uh, Newsom, according to the New York Times, now get this, last month even threatened doctors with disciplinary action if they offered what the state of California considered COVID misinformation to their patients. Okay, so there's a party accepted statement that you must subscribe to as a physician so that politics, I love this word, trumps science in the state of California. Um, So the question is, how do we break this cycle of polarization? The author in the New York Times, to his credit, comes to the conclusion that this is the big challenge in this election coming up midterm. Can, in any degree, the cycle of polarization in this country be disrupted or broken or affected by those who uh, get elected? I'm looking here if you want to call in and see Michael Lucas uh, um, speculating on the ticket. Rick Reichardt watching. Um, meanwhile, President Biden has got a built-in kind of insurance policy. There's no question in the eyes of many people who are watching him, both medical people and People like uh, average voters, voters, or would-be voters, probably on both parties, that his mental faculties are not sharp. Now, here's a list of things that the media in various places, you can find this in Lots of different publications, Fox News. Uh, you can find it in USA Today. You can find articles all over the place that are beginning to take a look at Biden's screw-ups. And they are so many um, that this Fox account can't even begin to count them all. Um, he recently wished... Vice President Kamala Harris a happy birthday and called her a great president. He later called Harris the highest ranking black Indian with Indian background woman in American history to be vice president. Now here's the double standard. Anybody in a Republican's mouth, that would have been racist. Besides, it's untrue. Uh, He's botched the name of the United Kingdom's new prime minister. Um, He also said that his executive order, which is unconstitutional and should be uh, thrown out by the courts, uh, passed by a vote or two. God only knows if he actually believed it or he actually just said it. He, um, um, He referred on September... 28th uh, to a lady who had passed away in a car crash in August 
asking, are you out there in the audience? Where are you? Um, I'm just going through them to kind of put them in context here. He, um, um, he's been wandering away after speeches. Um, people have had to direct him to where the, uh, the stairs are to get off the stage. He, um, it's just a, kind of a whole list of things going on. But the problem is, if we step in, we being becomes an obvious need to have a competent mind with his finger on the nuclear button. And we got Harris. And Harris is about as prepared to be the leader of this country as, well, I don't want to go there. You know the answer to that. So um, it's, it's, uh, it's um, all part of the context in which hopefully there'll be voter turnout. If there's enough voter turnout to take Congress and Senate, you can neutralize Biden. It's um, you can you can isolate him, and he'll he'll really be a lame duck. Uh, if we don't get that done, uh, that's that's a, a little bit of a problem. So I've researched a, a somewhat the Republican Senate formula, and uh, it really comes down to a couple of places. It comes down to Fetterman and Oz in Pennsylvania. Now, you would think, given Fetterman's last public behavior, that Oz would win that. But remember, this is Pennsylvania. So that what you think should be the case, I don't know. There you go. But it's uh, that's one of the important ones. And the there are opportunities, of course, in Georgia. And we're watching that. That's probably been one of the... Uh, dirtiest ones of all, uh, slinging uh, uh, mud at each other, right and left, and attempt to, and just using one issue, abortion, as if that really were the main be-all to inflationary cycles and mortgage rates and all that business. It has nothing to do with that. So that I can see, unless you can see something. It's possible, it's possible that the Republicans could take a 51-49 majority in the Senate, but only if it keeps its Republican seats it already has. So the opinions are probably that Nevada and Georgia have the best chance. Um, Arizona, a lot of mud's being slung out there. So if you win Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona and lose no incumbent seats, this is one formula. If the GOP wins Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona and loses no incumbent seats, it will win the Senate 53-47. If it wins two Georgia, Nevada, Arizona and loses no incumbent seats, it wins the Senate 52-48. If it wins one of the Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, and loses no incumbent seats, it wins the Senate 51-49. If it wins neither, none of Georgia, Nevada, or Arizona, and loses no incumbent seats, the Senate remains tied at 50-50, and the Democrats will control with Kamala Harris's vote. 
If they win Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, and lose Pennsylvania, they'll win the Senate 52-48. And if they win two of Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, and lose Pennsylvania, they'll win the Senate 51-49. If they win none, they don't win Georgia, they don't win Nevada, they don't win Arizona, they don't win Pennsylvania, the Democrats will win the Senate 51-49. So in five of these scenarios, and there are eight scenarios I just went through with you, Republicans could take control of the Senate. And in three of the scenarios, the Democrats would remain in charge. Now, that's about the best research I found. That was in Washington Examiner. Um, you would think the odds would be there that based upon their analysis that Republicans took take the Senate. Um, focusing a little more closely on Georgia, um, these, the woman appearing with the allegation against Walker, um, um, she, many people think, turned it into a circus, pulling out this celebrity lawyer, uh, who always seems to appear at places like this, and that this will play into hands, perhaps, of the Republicans. I don't know. Go figure. That's human nature. Um, who, who can figure out how that'll work? So um, that is, that is uh, the Senate. It's most interesting. That road to the House majority uh, runs through 11 races. And uh, the... Uh, uh, 270 to win, uh, and the, um, it's identified just 11 House races, races in seven states that are critical. And this is um, um, detailed. I thought maybe I'd go through these with you since I'm trying to understand this myself. Um, California's 22nd district, California's 27th district, New York's 19th district, New York's 22nd district. Now, that's interesting because both of those places are generally regarded as Democrat with Newsom and uh, the crowd in New York. Um, You know, here we go. Oregon's 5th district, Pennsylvania's 7th district and 8th district and 17th district. There are three districts in Pennsylvania. Rhode Island's and then you have Texas, and then you have Virginia's second district. It is um, up to where Plantation Mark Country is. So 207 to win, um, and um, um, that would make it Republican. The next level of certainty places 20 districts in the lean, and it gets more complicated from there because you have uh, 435 members in the House, and they all come up for election every two years. Anybody got a question? Let me look and see where we are. We're at 9.55. Any questions? Uh, Tim Martin is watching. Tim Martin says it's a toss-up in Georgia. Um, This is... um, Pennsylvania has already stated it will take seven days to count. Yeah, Pennsylvania, that's another thing we haven't factored into this is the elections probably 
will be challenged. Uh, if they don't come out the way the Democrats want them, Hillary Clinton's already said this, that uh, anything that the, any wins by the Republicans should be challenged, basically is what she's saying. And um, see, so it's okay, here we are back to the double standard. It's okay for the Democrats to challenge. It's certainly not all right for the Republicans to challenge. To the extent that this influences how uh, the turnout goes and how people vote, uh, in concluding, just a brief moment, we're going to have a more extensive conversation about this, and that's the single-member districts here locally. You know, it's uh, actually would increase the odds of a greater distribution of black representation with single-member districts, and it does with the way it is now for the reasons that Jason Riley spelled out. Uh, Jason Riley is black, and he understands that black leaders are using black folk for their own personal political power and that the black folk being taken for granted actually limits them. Nowhere do you see this more clearly than in the current avocation by the Rodney Longs and the Evelyn Foxes that there not be single member districts. And the reason they're saying is that uh, uh, therefore uh, they are guaranteed that everybody in the county will vote for a black candidate. And that black candidate right now is Chuck Chestnut. Well, what that does is it uh, keeps the black community isolated because it, it suggests that the only way you can be identified as needy as a, as, a, as a culture is to be collected in one place. Do you understand what I'm saying now? And what I'm saying is brilliant. I haven't heard about say it. The only way you can be identified as needy is to be collected in one place. And then we can play that harp. We can say, oh, woe is me. See, there's no this, no that, no whatever on this side of town. When the way to actually open up and increase the possibility of more representation is to have a representative from that district, a representative from another district. Because you see what it's saying under this assumption they're playing is that people can't think for themselves. They have to be told where to live in order to have any power. And yet, on the other hand, they want people to live wherever they want to live. The two things don't go together. So the hypocrisy of the refutation of the need for single member districts is blatantly clear to somebody who just calculates in it in his or her head right quickly. It, it presents itself as obvious. So we'll cover this more later. Have a great weekend. Warhol Command Center out.